Radio Drone. And welcome to yet another Radio Drone where you waste 55 minutes with Brad and I. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of Brad, point. now what have you got going on this week before we uh, get into anything? Currently uh, in the middle of editing uh, uh, Softly from Cable, or not Softly from Cable, I'm sorry. I'm currently in the middle of editing uh, Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory for the Snob, which sort of felt like I was watching uh, Satan's School for Girls again. <laughs> and uh, other than that, I, I'm uh, going to be doing uh, the second episode of Softly from Cable coming up, which I'm really looking forward to, which took me eight months to get to. <laughs> We've had a couple of people comment on when the hell are you going to get that done again. That was uh, it was it was certainly intentional that it took me a while to do another one, just getting bogged down with one project and then another project and then another took a, and also the fact that that movie depends on not only my schedule but my wife's as well since she's the star of it. So it, that see it just it just for for one reason or another it just took me a while to get to to reach the point to where I could do a second episode. Well, speaking of viewer comments, we got a couple of questions for you in the emails. Excellent. Joe would like to know if you could give out a lifetime achievement award for worst acting to Reb Brown, Bruce Payne, or any other actor. Who would you give it to? It wouldn't be Reb Brown or Bruce Payne because I don't think they're necessarily bad actors. I don't know Reb Brown. It's... I think Reb Brown is good at what he does. Badass on Miami Vice, I'll tell you that. The damn right he was. Um, he yeah, shot tubs. That... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I think yeah, Red Brown he he does he does good in the work that he's in. Um, I've seen Bruce Payne performances that I've liked. Eesh, uh, worst performances I've ever seen. Um, yeah, you remember that comic relief from uh, Redneck Zombies? Give it to him. See, I, I got to go a little more mainstream. Hayden Christensen as Mannequin Skywalker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of those deals where he was certainly really bad. I don't know if I necessarily lay all the blame of that on him, though. I think that most actors put in that role with that script wouldn't have done much better. And I've, I've seen him in other stuff where he's been okay, where he hasn't been that bad. Jumper? Come on. He was really I didn't awful see, I didn't see that. Jumper, but I thought, he was good in, uh, I thought he was good in Awake. And Carrie would like to know, when the hell are you ever going to do another Bruno Matai show? Oh, that was... Uh, that's pretty much you know the same reason for softly from cable with with uh the bruno matai show we only we can only film that on weekends it, it's just it's just easiest for us to do it on weekends to get to the bar and to have the bar not be all that crowded so we usually film that on a sunday and for the past few months our weekends were taken up with the hooker with a heart of gold so really, Hooker with a Heart of Gold put a halt on some other shows that I would typically be doing in that time, because in a few months since I'd done a Kung Tai Ted as well. But with the Bruno Matai show, it, that's one that, like I said, can only be shot on weekends. And now that Hooker with a Heart of Gold is finished, we're going to be doing, uh, we're shooting two episodes of the Bruno Matai show back to back, not this weekend but the next what are the movies it's women's prison massacre and rats so two of the better ones i don't know with bruno matai the word better has to be put in quotes when he's on i think he's really freaking on in terms of entertainment value really in terms of pretty gutter bucket exploitation and women's prison massacre is actually my favorite women in prison film of all time and rats i really like rats i like that rats is on its surface, you know, it's a killer rat movie. It's, you know, it's 
you like any of those other movies, but the fact that Bruno's doing it and he's crazy, uh, the movie also just happens to be post-apocalyptic. <laughs> well, a lot of those those you know giant killer monster movies. Look at Alligator and Piranha. Yeah, yeah. They basically were one note movies that because of a good writer and because of a good director. I think yeah. actually I think John Sales. I think they had the same writer for both. They were more than that. You actually gave yeah. a crap about the characters and what was going on. Oh yeah, and they had a giant alligator and killer piranhas in them too. Yeah, and those work because of that. And Bruno's Rats works. Not the same reasons why those movies work. Rats works in the way that it's done so over the top. The acting is so out there. The dialogue is just a genius would have to write dialogue this corny. It works because of that. It's memorable because of that. And it honestly, it really works. Oh, and I, I want to remind everybody, we always whore this out, 1201beyond at gmail.com. Brad, I don't know if you've been noticing, but a lot of people have been noticing all the weird music that I put in it at the end of the show. I always try and put yeah. in a strange rock song or a score from yeah. a movie. Been getting uh, a lot of compliments on that. I'm going to tell you guys, I'm always going to try and make it something somewhat weird. Nice. So let's have a little contest. You won't win anything other than a sense of accomplishment. I'm going to try some really weird stuff in the next couple of weeks, and I want to see if you guys, without using Google, will know either what movie or what band it is that I throw the music up for. You don't win anything other than, you know, you got to best me, other than that. Yes. <laughs> I, I, was, I was really happy uh, yesterday. I, I saw in a forum that somebody correctly guessed what the theme to uh, my show 80s Dan was. I didn't want to say what it was. I was waiting for someone to guess. And it, 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 I, I figured it might take a little while, which it did take at least a week. It did take until the second episode. It's from a short-lived uh, series from 1984 with Robert Ginty called Hawaiian Heat. <laughs> Do you have a copy of that by chance? That one I don't. I've got Ginty on Baywatch Nights. Oh, fantastic! I, uh, I, he was a uh, he was the head of a phone sex operation. He, he, he was the big uh, mob guy behind the. I think the episode was nine seven six ways to say I love you. <laughs> I, I, I think that was the title. Oh, that's great! But yeah, I've, I've got Ginty on Baywatch Nights because I didn't even notice his name in the credits, and I'm watching it, and all of a sudden the bad guy co comes out, and I go, "Holy crap! That's yeah. the exterminator!" <laughs> There was one of his that I watched a, a couple months ago. Man, what was the name? It had a title that was like The Exterminator, but not. It was the one with where uh, Sandal Bergman, a uh, terrorist, and she gets killed, and then they bring her back as a cyborg. Do you remember the one I'm talking about? Is that the one with Gregory Hines? Uh... Yeah, I, I think he was in it. I'm looking at my shelf I, right now. I, I know I've got that movie, and I just cannot remember it. I'm trying to look at my VHS shelf, but I have a stack of was, VHSs blocking my view. It was pretty entertaining. It was it was an entertaining flick. I liked, uh, I liked her as revolutionary terrorist killer that, well, this seems like a good idea. Let's bring her back, but give her... Eve, know, of, Eve of Destruction? Was it, was it Eve of Destruction? No, that was no, no. That was uh, uh, that was starring Gregory Hines. Uh, this one, this one is isn't. If Gregory Hines was in this, he's not the star. Ginty is the star. Give me, um, give me a year. I've just pulled up his IMDb page. I'm on it too. Looking through this thing too. I, I want to say it was uh, it was sometime in the eighties. This was after the Exterminator. I want to say this was even after uh, Exterminator Two. Cop target, codename Vengeance. The mission, kill. 
Three Kinds of Heat, Programmed to Kill, Maniac Killer. Was it The Alchemist? No, that's not it. It had a title like that was sort of like The Exterminator, but not, and it was, whatever it was, it was was entertaining uh, for... uh, What it was? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) For being at like three in the morning when I watched it. No, I, I don't seem to see it here, so... Uh, before we go on, we have a quick little PSA we, we want to play from our friend Dane Forgione over at the Mental Cast. Dane? Thank you, Josh. Um, for those of you who don't know, like Brad Jones, I myself am a inspire as, aspiring actor, and I belong to a group called the Staten Island Academy of Performing Arts. The group has been around for 15 years, and it's been serving Staten Island very well. Fortunately, at the present moment, the group is going through some financial difficulties, and there is a very good chance that it may close down. The woman who runs the school, I will keep her name private for the time being, because I, I don't, I'm not sure if she would want her name to be revealed over the radio. I've known her for well over 10 years, and she's like a second mother to me. And her kids are like the little brothers and sisters I never had. I guess what I'm asking is to all the Radio Drum fans out there to help out myself as well as the Staten Island Academy of Performing Arts. Any amount of money will help. Any amount that you guys can muster up will help. Will work out. I have a PayPal account, and uh, I guess I should give the PayPal account, huh? Yep, that'd be probably help. Yes, NY Guy. 322 at yahoo.com that's nyguy322 at yahoo.com any and all donations would be well appreciated and just so people know this is not going to Dane this is going to the Performing Arts Center Theater this is not a personal gain absolutely not not center this is going to I've known this woman for too long to do something like that all right, so Radio Drome fans, so if you guys you can give them a little help out you know if especially if you're in the New York area all right, are you done looking through IMDb? You figured out what your title is yet there? <laughs> it's Programmed to Kill. I, I, there, was, I, there was a couple of things that I watched r- roughly around the same time, and uh, it, one of them that I watched had a title that was sort of like The Exterminator, but uh, it, must not have been, it must not have been this one. But this title was Programmed to Kill, unless I watched it on a, an, in an alternate title, which I, it doesn't look like I did, but that was, that was the name of it. You want to you hear something really cool? Mm-hmm. Going through some old papers at my mom's house, an HBO and Cinemax cable guide from September of 1990. Oh, oh man. Dude, I used to get those in the mail all the time because we had that HBO Cinemax package. I remember, uh, I remember when they even changed like the sizes of them because in the '80s they were they were rectangle shaped and they went horizontal. They read horizontal. Uh, th- this um, one's rectangle, so it's still. This, and this is September '90, so they must not have changed it till like '91. Yeah, yeah, and then it, and then it changed to where it was. It was a little bit smaller, and it was uh, maybe still sort of rectangle, but it was. It, it went. You held it, you know, ver- vertical, and the longer end was the vertical end. Because here um, um, we got on the cover Mike Tyson: The Comeback Continues, mm-hmm. and Mel Gibson: Lethal Weapon Two. That's awesome. The Abyss <laughs> exclusive premieres September first. Lethal Weapon Two exclusive premieres September second. Remember back when that was a big deal? Yeah. <laughs> they showed Penn and Teller get killed. They've got uh, Robert De Niro and Ed Harris and Jackknife. They've got Millennium with Cheryl Ladd and Chris Christopherson. Inside the NFL, Stephen Wright, Dream On. Oh, 
inside the NFL. Yeah, I remember that was the one that I always made a point not to watch because it bored me. Um, well, I just what I think is funny is especially when I get to the horror stuff and action stuff. These are these are things that would never appear on these channels today. Well, remember Full Moon Madness? Uh, yep, I'm getting to that. They apparently had Submarine Heroes Month on Cinemax. Yeah. We have The Abyss, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Lords of the Deep, Leviathan. Weller is great in that. Yeah, Wo- World Without awesome. Sun, Fantastic Voyage, The Enemy Below, and Hellcats of the Navy. I used to love when they would do theme months. Here we got Full Moon Madness. We got The Horror Show, It's Alive 3, Island of the Alive, Happy, yeah. B- Happy Birthday to Me, Shadow Zone, and To Die For. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. We yeah, got, I'm with you. I miss I miss those theme months as well, and I miss that. Oh man, yeah, every full moon when they had that. The earliest the earliest one of those that I remember of the uh, HBO Cinemax guides was the one that was advertising the premiere of uh, Jacks with James Spader. So that would have been '86. Well, because here we, we got some more good ones. Cinemax Saturday Night Drive In. I guess they were trying yes. to compete. They were trying to compete with Joe Bob. Maybe we had Easy Wheels, Under the Gun, Lethal Weapon Two, Blood Fist, and Forced Vengeance. Forced Vengeance, nice. Yeah, we we got, we got a Chuck Chucker in there. <laughs> uh, I need to. I you know what? Oh man, I haven't thought about those in a while. I'm actually gonna that that'll give me something to do later on when I'm done editing. I'm I'm gonna go to eBay and see how many of those those guides I can snatch up. If any of our fans out there, if you've got any old HBO Showtime, any old cable guides from the 80s or 90s, yeah. Brad and I will pick them up off you if you guys are interested in getting rid of them. Brad, yeah. Brad and I will fight over them. That was what we had, the HBO Cinemax Guide, um, and, of course, TV Guide. We, we, had, the, we had TV Guide. Um, we didn't, let's see, uh, I was mostly with my dad. Uh, and me and my dad had the HBO Cinemax package. And then when I would be with my mom, which would be like a couple of days out of the week, um, she had uh, she had Showtime. My mom had Showtime and Cinemax. So I was in a great position because no matter where I was, I had Cinemax. <laughs> Get this, HBO Late Night, Black Eagle, The Brain, Not of This Earth, Deadly Friend, and Puppet Master. This is all stuff that you cannot that you cannot you can rarely see on those channels now which is amazing because what is there like eight HBOs now they used to 10? live yeah they used to live off this mm-hmm. these channels would never show these movies again so uh-huh. it's just pr- fun looking through these all right we got to move on to something else though Brad do you remember back in 94 when it first broke that Tarantino basically stole Reservoir Dogs from an Asian film called City on Fire that he was, that was basically a plagiarist that was the Chow Yun Fat movie, right? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen them both. I actually like Reservoir Dogs better. <laughs> I do too, but it doesn't change the fact that he stole it and refused to acknowledge the fact that he stole it. Yeah. See, that's the problem I have. My problem isn't necessarily that he got he got a lot of ideas from the other movie because I've made what five movies. I can point out some inspiration that I've had with, with a few of mine. My problem comes with what you just said, when the, when you don't when you don't admit that granted, I never took as much as He did. I, 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 exactly. Except well, I guess the I made a movie called Cheap, which I'll openly admit is a remake of Last House on Dead End Street. With Cheap, y- even uh Roger Watkins who made the uh 
the original seemed to like it. Well, that's cool. <laughs> the guy that broke this in America, Empire Magazine in England is actually the one that broke the story first, but it seemed like the American press was so in love with Tarantino, nobody wanted to be the one to start this story up. The guy that did it is a guy named Mike White. He uh, ran a magazine called Cashiers de Cinemart, and he made a short film, a little you know, documentary basically accusing Tarantino of plagiarism called yeah. Who Do You Think You're Fooling? And he made a uh-huh. sequel called You're Still Not Fooling Anybody About Pulp Fiction. And yeah. he basically got shafted. The media roasted him like crazy by the fact that he was just trying to leech off Tarantino's popularity and he couldn't stand to see, you know, another video store clerk get somewhere when he couldn't. And the mainstream media seemed completely unwilling to actually look at his claims and just dismissed him outright. I sat down with him and talked to him for about a half hour. We're here with Mike White of Cashiers de Cinemat, and you may know him from... Who do you think you're fooling? You're still not fooling anybody. And basically, this is the guy that more or less exposed Tarantino for the thief that he is. Am I correct, Mike? You can say that. What prompted you to to feel the need to go and expose Tarantino as a thief? I guess it's just uh, I was such a major fan of his uh, way back in the day. Um, Reservoir Dogs came out when I was in college, and I was just a huge, huge fan of it. I was lucky enough to get a... Uh, bootleg screener copy of it off of the streets of New York. Someone sent it to me, and myself and my housemates, we used to watch just the heck out of that movie. Loved it so much, wanted to know everything I possibly could about it, and then when I uh, heard from a friend of mine that it actually wasn't as original as it was cracked up to be, I kind of got bent out of shape. What was your first reaction upon seeing City on Fire and going, holy crap, this is the same, this is the same <laughs> movie? That was pretty much my reaction right there. I mean, the similarities, luckily, they're they're not right off the bat. You know, it doesn't start with, uh, you know, Chow Yun-Fat and Danny Lee at a diner talking about uh, Madonna and um, dress book with some, you know, American guy's name in it that they can't remember. It's a little bit different than that. There are scenes that, that show up that are like, oh, my God, you know, like the... The whole Mexican standoff, I was like, you know, hadn't really seen anything like that before. And just the, um, you know, the the undercover cop who has to shoot an innocent bystander to prove that he's not, you know, that he's part of the gang. Those kind of things. The uh, two-fisted shooting of guns at the police car that's coming up on the the bank robbers as they're trying to get away. Those kind of iconic images had really just, like, you know, blown my mind when I saw them in Reservoir Dogs. And then to see them again in another film, that was just like, oh, wow. And then even then, I was very much like, oh, okay, you know, I I realized that this guy is very much a collage artist. And, you know, I, I had known that color names were taken from you know taking a pelham one two three and other things and i had really studied up on this guy you know he was very very popular at the time and was uh giving interviews and recommendations you know lists of recommendations to so many film magazines and i would go and track down all these things and see little bits and pieces of movies that ended up in reservoir dogs but then just to see this huge chunk of reservoir dogs show up in city on fire and then to have never read him say, oh yeah, and you should see City on Fire, it was a very influential movie, it's like, oh, wow, that's that's really something. So yeah, I, I gave the guy you know the benefit of the doubt and waited and waited and you know kept waiting for him to say, and City on Fire is great, and when he didn't, 
that's when I kind of, as they say in the movies, took the law into my own hands. Didn't he even at one point claim he'd never seen City on Fire and it sounded like it was a good movie? I believe the MTV News segment claimed that. That MTV News segment, it's it's hilarious because there are really more things wrong than right. I mean, I think Kurt Loder gets his own name right, but the rest of it is just so far off the mark, it's hilarious. And what cracks me up even more is that somebody had approached me from MTV News I'd say probably about a month or so before that story ran and asked me all these questions and I you know, provided as many answers as I could. It was a, a guy who ended up being, uh, I think he's a, a writer now, named Torre, just goes by one name, and he had this huge attitude with me and stuff and you know, just kind of right off the bat, probably because I'm a Midwesterner and he's a New Yorker. And yeah, I thought like, oh, well, MTV is going to do a story about me, you know, and then like a month later, a friend of mine calls me up and says, dude, I just heard about you on MTV. And they played the story like twice more, I think, and that was it. And then when I finally saw the story, it's like, none of this is correct at all. (laughs) It was just like so far off the mark that I I did include that as part of who, um, you're still not fooling anybody. And it's just kind of me just because so much of it is wrong. Like they say that my short film was not going to play at the New York Underground at all, but it ended up playing like two or three times there. And um, it had been pulled from the press press screenings, but it hadn't been pulled from the festival at all. And then, yeah, even at that time, Tarantino had said that he had seen City on Fire and he really liked it and he um, had the poster. Uh, that's all he ever said about it, as far as I know. He never said, and I took a lot from it. He just said, yeah, I got the poster. It's really great, blah, 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 blah. And in that blah, 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 there was no, to me, admission of you know culpability or, or guilt, as it were. But yeah, so even by then, and then for MTV to report that you know Tarantino's dying to see the film, it's just like, okay, yeah, you guys have your head so far up your ass. By that time, I was really learning that the press just kind of did what they never want. did any research. <laughs> What's that? They sort of did whatever they wanted and called it news. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It felt like there were the, maybe one or two sentences out there that would just kind of get repeated and repeated and repeated. And it felt like, you know, I even had a friend write to me once and he said, you know, it seems like everyone is talking about your movie, but no one has ever actually bothered to see it. And it's like, yeah, that, that pretty much sums it up right there. All right, for people who haven't seen your movie, the original Who Do You Think You're Foolin', can you explain mm-hmm. to the audience a little bit about what Who Do You Think You're Foolin' is? Yeah, it's about 10 minutes long, and I took, I kind of did a little play on, on uh, the title. I called it Who Do You Think You're Foolin', the story of a robbery. So I really talk about the robbery that's in uh, Reservoir Dogs and also in City on Fire. They talk about it in Reservoir Dogs, but you actually see it in City on Fire. So I kind of use the voice narration from Reservoir Dogs to narrate what's going on on the screen from City on Fire. And it's basically just that whole robbery section of the jewelry store and then the aftermath of them running away from the robbery, going to the warehouse, having the uh, Mexican standoff, and the admission that in the City on Fire it's a Chalian Fat character and in Reservoir Dogs it's the um, Tim Roth character. They're undercover cops. And then you get to see kind of that all uh, cut, cross cut, uh, Harvey Keitel's reaction and Danny Lee's reaction. And so, yeah, that's it, just 10 minutes long. And then, you know, the other play on it is that it's kind of robbery of Tarantino robbing Ringo Lamb of his original film. 
Yeah, because I noticed the credit at the beginning said uh, directed by Ringo Lamb, and then again by Quentin and Tarantino. Again. Yeah, I, I noticed <laughs> right, that little credit exactly. at the beginning. And I have to say, it is very well done the way you intercut dialogue from Reservoir Dogs onto footage of City on Fire and vice versa, and they fit. They fit quite well <laughs> to show you just how Thank much you. Tarantino copied that you didn't have to do it Thanks. a whole lot. The no, f- no, not a whole lot at all. I tried to make the, the two films kind of interact, you know, like the one the one line where uh, the Harvey Keitel says he's a good kid, and then the other, and then the Chinese guy from City on Fire is like, yes, he's a good brother. And, and then, so, and that's then the was whole, my favorite line. The bam, 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 bam thing from Keitel, and then you show all that mm-hmm. exact footage from City on Fire of all the clerks getting shot, and that it, it just it works really well. But no, there was a lot of fallout over who do you think you're fooling, wasn't there? That you were banned from festivals and people were calling you a plagiarist and explain what some of the fallout was accurately yeah. since it seems everybody else seemed to get it wrong. <laughs> that was just so much fun to see swirl around all of it and just to people saying that, uh, I mean there were people that said like so you made this movie with these Asian guys and Tarantino ripped you off and it's like what you know don't don't you understand anything at all but it was it's just very funny to me some of the the stuff that came out of it yeah I was only actually banned from one film festival and that was the New York Underground Film Festival and that was when uh, it was uh, well it was when it was still around when Todd Phillips of uh, The Hangover fame and Andrew Gerland of The Last Exorcist fame were still running the show. And then after they left and Ed Halter came in, he said, no, you're not banned anymore. Then I haven't made anything really since then. <laughs> so I haven't had to, to test, the, test the limits with that. So yeah, that was the only one I was banned from. And that was after I had uh, really, I wouldn't say that I banned Todd and Andrew, but I pretty much called them out um, to say, you guys were kind of going behind my back and kind of dissing me quite a bit. And why would you do that to one of the filmmakers that was in your your? Well, I felt very much like the Rube coming to the big city. You know, I didn't have the suspenders and the the piece of straw that I was chewing on, but it felt very much like that. And it felt like they were treating me that way when I came out to New York the first time. And to read quotes in USA Today uh, of where Todd Phillips is like. Oh well, you take any horror film and you cut it together with a Hitchcock film, it's going to look like they ripped off Hitchcock. And it's like, well, maybe De Palma, but not necessarily. You know, it's like, and why are you doing that? Why are you saying that to USA Today? And why are you kind of bad mouthing to you know these other people when, at the same token, to other other venues, he's saying, oh yeah, you got to come and see this movie and blah 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 blah. You know, so it's it felt very two faced. So when I call on that. That's when uh, the next year, when I, or a few years later, when I made uh, "You're Still Not Fooling Anyone" and sent it to the festival, they they kind of they got a little uh, a little mad at me, but I thought it was more funny than anything. <laughs> well, have you ever run into anyone who's like worked with Tarantino or Tarantino himself? No, thank God. I think he would probably punch me in the face or spit on me if I if I ran into him. I've seen what he's done to other people on on YouTube. I don't need that kind of stuff. But no, I, I've never never had the displeasure, and I've uh, not really run into anyone that's worked with him. Uh, you know, we definitely travel in different circles. You know, I'm still still here in Detroit. He's still out there in LA. Yeah, no, I, I haven't uh, haven't ever hung out with him. What What would you say? You know, I know this is a standard stupid interview question, but what would you say to him if you ever ran into him? 
for some reason you two are on the same festival w- would you kind of pretend I'm not that Mike White <laughs> yeah I'm the guy that made School of Rock I'm not the other Mike White you might have seen me on Amazing Race right <laughs> <laughs> well geez you know I've never even thought about it I'd uh I'd probably stand by my guns you know and just said anything I'd just say yeah I, I don't think it was cool the way that you you know took from from somebody else so much and never gave credit where credit was due I mean, it's it's um it's become a game now when you watch his new movies where it's like, oh, I, I recognize that little bit and I recognize this little bit and oh, I, I see that from this other thing and it's like, it's almost like Mystery Science Theater where you're picking up all the references that they're making as they're watching someone else's film, and you know that's what it's like for me going to see a Tarantino film now like. Oh hey yeah I saw that exact same shot composition in Lady Snowblood. Oh yeah that piece of music is from this and that piece of music is from that and it's the music stuff that really bothers me. The you know the stuff that he did in Pulp Fiction with you know using surf music I thought that was great. The stuff that he did in Reservoir Dogs using all the the 70s hits I thought that was great. But what he's done lately where he's just kind of recycling other people's soundtracks it's like dude, you know, you, you can afford a composer. Why don't you go out and, and hire one, okay? Give somebody a job. It's it's the depression now, you know, the recession. Get get somebody a job here. All right, let's change gears a little bit. Now, you published an underground zine. Well, starting as a zine, it ended up more as a regular magazine called Cashiers de Cinemat, which uh, went for 15 issues. I had an article in the last issue, ironically enough, the only article that does not have an Internet counterpart. Thank you, Mike. I know. I still need to put that up. I'm sorry. Um, Such a long article, man. <laughs> hey, and you cut it down. If if you remember the article I actually sent you, you cut like four pages out of that, too. Yeah. Yeah, um, that would have been like almost the whole issue. Hey, when I deliver something, I deliver 100%. Oh, you, that was great. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I love was that obsessive you know, attention to detail and just going completely nuts with the subject matter, you know, it's just like you had laser focus and you just went for it and I always appreciated that, so Well, I, I appreciated you printing the article. Oh, well, God I mean, you were the guy to know all pilots, you know, so that you were the, you know, you sat on high with that one and just kind of yeah, you, know, you 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 came down from the mountain with that article, and I appreciate that. What were some of your problems and or pleasures in the? How many years were you actually publishing the zine to get those fifteen issues out first? Uh, it was only about sixteen years. For a while there, I was doing so it was ballpark um, an issue a year. Ballpark. Yeah, just, yeah. I mean, in the beginning when it was you know twelve pages, twenty eight pages, you know, I was turning those things out pretty darn fast. Towards the end there, when it was like 86 pages, there would be a year or two between uh, between issues. On average, it seemed like an issue a year, but it was a little bit more than that. I mean, a lot of people kind of thought that issue 15 was never going to come out, and it's like, no, I'm still working on it. Don't worry, I'm, I'm still working on it. Uh, I am very OCD, so it was very much like I have to find, you know, if I'm going to do an article on... David Goodest adaptations. I'm going to have to find as many of those as I possibly can. And then it's one of those, like, where I finally have to say, I can't find more. I'm going to go with this article the way that it is and, you know, finally put it out. But it, took, it takes a long time for me to finally admit defeat. What were some of the pitfalls of 
publishing your own zine. I mean, you don't have to give dollar amounts, but I'm assuming this all came directly out of your pocket and you did not exactly see a good return on these financially. No, definitely not. It, definitely not. That was where I, to, to put the nail in the coffin, was just the, the bank account, you know, because it was a labor of love. And it, it still is a labor of love. I don't know if you read on the site, but I actually am doing a 16th issue. I just, I'm going to try to do it as cheap as I possibly can. But I'm gonna. I'm aiming to put it out in September because there's this whole revenge of print movement, and they want to. You know, it's a couple indie bookstores are trying to breathe life back into print, so I'm trying to get back into it. So there is a huge financial burden to it, um, and I was trying my best to offset that with ads and everything. I guess what really, what really sealed it for me, and what I'm really going to try to avoid with this issue, is the whole. Um, the distribution problems that I was having, you know, it was great for a few years when Tower Records was distributing me because they they were run uh, the magazine department at least was run by just an incredible guy, this guy Clint Johns, you know exactly where to put the, the zine in order to sell the most of it. I mean, talking to him on the phone, he's like, I'm gonna put three in Cleveland, I'm gonna put two in Osaka, one over in Israel, and it's like, okay, I don't know why you're doing that, but I know that all of these are gonna sell, and they would. And he would, you know, he just knew where the demands were. Between, I'd say between issue 14 and 15 is when Tower Records went out of business and the economy went into the tank and so many of the mom and pop stores that I was dealing with went under as well. And that was the you know that was the biggest pitfall I'll say is just when it, when push came to shove and it was time to put out a new issue for fifteen there was nobody there you know there's no one there to support it there were no you know little bookstores anymore to you know take it off my hands so I still have you know boxes and boxes of this thing out in my garage. I'm sure a bunch of our listeners will want to pick up issue 15. Maybe you can unload some of those. Yeah, well they can always get it through the site and uh, which is impossiblefunky.com. And then I know that uh, Atomic Books in Baltimore still carries it, which is great. You know, I will every once in a while I'll go down there and dump off a whole box onto those poor folks. So if they want to go to Atomic Books in Baltimore or AtomicBooks.com, they can definitely pick up some issues that way. Well, we have a very good listenership here. There are a lot of really good people. So guys, go out and check out. Just if you want to sample the magazine, issue 15 is the last issue as of now that came out and it's the one with my article so if you're a fan of me you can always get issue 15 there that way there you go double whammy did you ever get any praise i mean did you ever really find yourself selling the same number of copies as say film threat which arguably would have been one of your competitors on the weirdo independent magazine scene i doubt it i doubt that i sold uh nearly that many you know that that's a, that's a tough one i don't know how many they were selling and and i would never think to ask what the numbers were or anything i mean i was i was always pretty pretty low under the radar with stuff so i mean even at when i was uh you know at at the top i would say i was probably you know getting rid of like maybe three thousand copies and that was you know when i had a really good distributor in canada and like three or four good distributors in the u.s and then uh, you know i was still sending out like 200 freebies just trying to get um, advertisers uh, sending out uh, copies to celebs, trying to get interviews, all that kind of stuff. So I'd say that was probably the, the top right there, well, which really is a drop in the bucket. 
Yeah, but you got to think, even if you were selling 3,000, that's 3,000 people that are more or less going to be reading your magazine. And let's be honest, you did this because you wanted people to read it, not to make money, right? Exactly, yeah. And, and more than, this sounds ridiculous, more than wanting people to read it, I just wanted people to be exposed to some of these films and some of these ideas, some of these writers, and that's that's always what I would, um, you know, when I would have contributors, I always would ask them, write about what you love and what you want people to know about, and that was the whole purpose of the magazine, was kind of, you know, turning people on to stuff that they normally wouldn't have seen anyplace else, you know, it's like, give me an article about, I had one guy who's a huge fan of, of Shock Treatment, the uh, unofficial sequel to uh, Rocky the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And he went on for, you know, two or three pages all about shock treatment and how much he loves the movie, what the, the history of it was, and just more about shock treatment than you're ever going to get anyplace else. And fully turning a couple people onto this movie that they might not have ever heard of before, and which in and of itself is a, to me, it's a great movie. I love the soundtrack. I love watching it. And it's, it was kind of ahead of its time as far as the reality TV stuff that they took on in it. You know, and there's, you know, every article that I got from a contributor was like that, and hopefully everything that I wrote was much like that, too, to say, here's something that you really haven't heard of before, but you really need to give a chance. Well, the thing I liked about it, and this is not ass-kissing, the massive in-depth comparisons you do. I remember the, like, the Alien 3 article, where basically you guys reviewed in detail every single script for Alien 3 that was rejected and why they either sucked or would have made a better film. Same thing with uh, the Mulholland Drive pilot the TV version versus the movie. I, I just, I always love just the massive in-depth articles where you just guys just tore mainstream Hollywood apart like that and showed, <laughs> it showed kind of the hypocrisy of mainstream Hollywood. I always, I just, I get off on that. I, I love seeing what things might have been either better or worse you know there uh, it's the one article i always point back to is uh, the article about um the indiana jones 4 movie that almost came out you know way back in like what 97 98 you know they were really hot on the idea of it and people are just so down on uh the fourth indiana jones and i will admit that Kingdom of the Crystal Skull sucked. Yeah, it sucked really, really hard. When you look at the screenplays of the versions that were before that one, they were actually even worse than what came out to theaters. Same thing with it, Alien 3. I oh, mean, yeah. Th th those scripts were terrible. As bad as Alien 3 ended up, it could have been a lot worse. Except I, I personally liked David Toohey's script, which more or less became Pitch Black. Pitch Black is the unofficial Alien 3 in my mind. Yeah, I can totally see that. I can totally see that. Now, if only, you know, Ripley showed her arms as much as Vin Diesel, we'd, we'd be all right. I can't remember even if Ripley was in David Toohey's Alien 3 script or not. I can't remember. Uh -huh. I, I do remember the prison colony and the darkness right. and all that. I don't remember if it had any of the characters from Alien or yeah, Aliens in it. Because there were a few of them that, that uh, they had been told, you know, she's not coming back, so make sure that she's not in the script. All right, Mike, you had a little bit of trouble with Chris Gore of Film Threat, and what was the IFC show called, that he got you kicked off of called? Uh, the Ultimate Film Fanatic. You want to tell us a little bit about that and your history with Mr. Gore? I wouldn't say that Chris got me kicked off of the show. Me knowing Chris got me kicked off of the show, and, and I'd never even actually... I still actually haven't even met the guy in person. We've just exchanged emails and letters and... Uh, 
a couple phone calls throughout the years. My relationship with Chris is, is very strange. Started off very much in that um, um, hey guy that's doing this thing that I really want to do. I could do it a lot better than you. That was me saying that to him. <laughs> you know, I was a big film threat fan way back in the in the day. I just I, there were certain things about it that bothered me. One of the things being, for example, within the pages of one issue, you could read like, "Hey, this movie is absolutely wonderful. This is the best movie that's ever come out." And thank goodness that that this is graced the silver screen. And then two pages later, another writer would be saying, "God, this movie sucks. I can't stand it." You know, and he'd be talking about the same movie, and it's like, "Okay, can we get some sort of you know clarity of vision here? You know, some sort of you know Citizen Kane kind of thing? Like, what's your declaration of principles? Is this movie good or is it not? And if it's you know, if it's if you're on the fence, like get these two guys together and maybe have a battle royale about it or something. But yeah, it was just kind of strange. So there were a few things where I would just be like, "Hey, you know," sitting down and writing my my letter back in the days when we had uh, you know the the Pony Express, writing these letters out to to Chris to say, you know, you could change this, you could change that, this would be better, blah 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 blah. And when they came out with their little article to Tarantino, like, "Hey, did you know that Tarantino ripped off this other movie?" Then I kind of got on my high, high horse and said oh you guys are so far behind the game you know I made this movie about this and sent it out to him Chris Gore called me and was like oh my god this is the best thing ever this is so great we're going to tear Hollywood up this is going to be absolutely amazing blah 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 you know I really want to get a better copy of this tape can you send it to me like sure no problem he said hey do you know what and he gave me this great idea he said you should put a little intro on it to let people know what's going on with this for people coming in cold. And I said, yeah, that makes total sense. So I read, rather than just tagging that on to the, the really crappy VHS copy I had, I re-edited the whole thing, put on the intro, you know, it really kind of lit a fire under my butt to, to send this to him. So I sent it to him, and I never heard back from him again. And it's like, what? <laughs> what's going on? Uh, years ago, you know, I kept trying to reach out to him, and it's like, Chris, I never heard from you. What's going on? You know, you promised that this would go on to the the tape that would get sent out when people would subscribe to the Film Threat Video Guide. Never heard about this, and then I started hearing like these weird rumors where he was showing my tape around at at film festivals, but not giving me any kind of credit or stuff. And my name's on the film, so I'm getting that credit, but not to be like, you know, he's not telling like, oh, by the way, Mike, I. I just showed you for the Chicago Underground Film Festival. Hope you don't mind or anything like that. It was just kind of strange. And then I would even read articles where it was like, you know, Chris Gore sent me this tape, and across the ta- across the front it said evidence on it, and they would be writing about Tarantino. And it's like, okay, well, that's kind of cool that you're doing that, but at the same time, it's kind of weird too, and just to not have any kind of dialogue between us. And then I really, really got bent out of shape when years later. Film Threat's still going on, but it's kind of its last legs as far as I'm concerned. And they offer this lifetime um, subscription offer for $99 or whatever, lifetime subscription to Film Threat. And then they folded like the next uh, issue and wouldn't return anybody's money. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. You, know, you took all these people's money. Who knows how many people sent in checks, but I knew a few few people who had. And it's like, you took all these people's money and then you fold and you won't refund it. That's really kind of shady so I kind of got on this case about that wrote him some emails we exchanged some heated emails and stuff and you know basically told me you know stop writing cashier's to cinema 
go back to editing movies. That's what you're good at. Writing is not your your strong point, which I kind of you know took a little offense to. Blah blah blah. And then years and years later, I don't hear anything from him forever. I don't say anything to him in forever. Years later, I I try to get on this game show where movie geeks compete. I'm like, oh, I, I was born to be on this show. They fly me out to California. I'm ready to go out onto the stage, and they go, oh yeah, and uh, Chris Gore, our host, and it's like, oh, you got to be kidding me, <laughs> Chris Gore's the host. And I said, okay, you know, I'll let bygones be bygones. And I'm, I mean, I'm right there behind the curtain, ready to go out. And you, you could just picture that vaudeville hook where they kind of pull you back off the stage. It was just one of the producer's hands coming down on my shoulder and like, we need to talk. And they're like, took me into this back room. Have you ever talked to Chris Gore before? And it's like, well, we've exchanged emails. You, you're not on the show. You can't have any kind of contact with the hosts because it could be, uh, it was that whole quiz show rule, you know, where... If I talk to the host, he might show me favoritism or the opposite tact, he might dislike me and, you know, kind of rig the game to, to make sure that I didn't win or that I did win. So it was just kind of kind of a strange situation. Seems like you guys have kind of buried the hatchet because he does an intro for your book and he basically apologizes for everything he ever did to you and he understands why you hate him. That intro is just... Every time I read it, it just absolutely floors me, and I'm just so grateful that he did that. When I asked him to write the intro to the book, I expected either no answer or just the big F you coming back via email. And when he wrote back to me like uh, a few days later and said, "Sure, yeah, I'll write it. You know, give me a deadline, give me you know word count, and you know I'll do it." I was like, "Okay," and I was just sus- suspicious of the whole thing because there had been such animosity between us. He sends me this intro. You know, I think it's 99.9% what he wrote. I think there might have been like a typo or something, but otherwise it's his words exactly. And, you know, I, I print this out and I take it home and I give it to my wife to read. And she's like, after, after she's done, she's like, I might cry. This was so heartfelt what he wrote. And it's just, yeah, it really, it just absolutely floors me every time I read that. And it's, yeah, now we have buried the hatchet. I mean, he's... We exchange emails, you know, you know, imagine one of these days we're actually going to be in person and share a drink and just uh, put the whole past behind us. It's really fun. All right, and you guys can pick up his book. It's Impossibly Funky, The Cashier's Du Cinemark Collection by Mike White. You can pick it up at Amazon, any kind of, you know, decent bookstore, an indie bookstore, anything like that. Or do they sell it through your website? Sell it through the website through impossiblefunky.com or impossiblefunky.blogspot.com. Like I said, if you want to pick up the Cashiers to Cinemart issue 15, he's still got a ton of copies, which he can probably let go cheap. And it's got my overly long, pretentious article in there, too. So if you pick up 15, Fantastic. you can read my article. <laughs> it's called Piloting Murky Waters. I can't remember what I titled it. Piloting Something Waters. It's all about unaired TV pilots. And keep in mind, he cut like four pages out of that in the editing process. I, I went nuts. I, gave, I sent him like a 10-page treatise on all the unaired pilots that I've got in my collection. I can't wait until I'm uh, done editing Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory so that movie can be behind me. That's a pretty bad <laughs> movie, isn't it? It's it's not good. Well, I, I liked it better than I liked it better than Star Odyssey. <laughs> see, I, I don't get that. I don't know what I mean, I get your hatred for Star Odyssey, but I don't see how it's worse than Werewolf. I'll tell you why well one, it didn't have those robots in it. It didn't have those well, those suicidal, suicidal Howard the Duck robots. 
those Howard the Duck robots. It didn't have those things in it, so right away that makes it a better movie. And also, it was a half hour shorter. It. I don't know. I I found it to not be a good movie. I no, found no, that one painful I, to sit through. Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory, uh, to me, that's one of those, of all the movies that I've sort of come across in doing this show, it's one of them that I would just say, it is what it is. It's. I don't think it's offensively bad. It's just a mediocre at best and I'm gonna I'm gonna forget it five minutes after after editing this video that's kind of a rarity for you a black and white movie it's the it's uh, it's the oldest one I've done 1961 um it's the oldest one I've done for the show it's also yeah it's the only black and white movie I've done too which I uh, point that out in the review as well what do you got coming up after that or do you not want to spoil what the next public domain month movie is I don't want to spoil what the next one's gonna be because there's always that risk that I might change my mind and pick something else uh-huh. um, as for what's coming up another, a new softly from cable uh, in the future there will be more 80s Dan and a uh, new Bruno Matai show two new Bruno Matai shows two yeah back to back two new Bruno Matai shows I, I can't wait till you get to the Personally, I think his best movie is Terminator 2 slash Shocking Dark. But I since, love that movie. Are you going to do that since you've already really done a snob on it? Are you going to do oh, that yeah, as a Bruno they're Matai? Two, they're two completely different shows. The cinema snob is, is you know, it is a, it's a fictitious character who milks, com- who milks jokes and milks comedy out of all of these far-out movies. The Bruno Matai show isn't, it, it is just sort of a roundtable, serious discussion on movies, so they're both. Yeah, I have no problem with that. They're both two completely different shows. I thought you'd really get a kick out of that HBO Cinemax guide that I just found at my mom's house. Now I'm wondering how many more of these might be buried in the old entertainment center with you know all the rotting VHS tapes she's got in the basement that are all moldy. I'm wondering how yeah. many old HBO Cinemax. Because see, the, the weird thing with me was we never had Cinemax. We did. I, I had uh, HBO and Showtime, but they each had the guide for the you know. Cinemax and Movie Channel had the, the combo guide, and so did HBO and Cinemax. Yeah. So I kept getting to see movies advertised that I didn't get a channel for. Oh, man. That bites, especially in regards to not having Cinemax. <laughs> well, for you, I know you just got some good news about Cinemax this week. Yeah, yeah, you sent me this about... They're talking about Statham um, being in, a, in, a, in a, a, TV, a TV series based on The Transporter. Yeah. Oh, dude, I would, I would, I would, I'd dig that. <laughs> I could dig that new Statham every week, dude. Sign me up, I'm down. But Cinemax seems like an odd channel for that, doesn't it? It actually does. In fact, noticing right now that what w- you said Cinemax, for some reason, I was thinking uh, Showtime or HBO. Apparently, Cinemax wants to get into the original game. They've already got that that one show, Lingerie. It's yeah. like it's like so- a soft core series, but at the same time, it's got a lot of character moments. So I yeah. guess after Red Shoe Diaries, they want to try again to try and make some... Or was Red Shoe Diaries Showtime? I thought that was Cinemax. Red Shoe Diaries was Showtime. Okay. It looks like Cinemax wants to get into the original game now. It's not a bad idea. Not necessarily like the Transporter, but a more... But a non-Cinemax-type show on Cinemax. I'm surprised they haven't done it sooner. Well, do you remember back in... Oh, it might might even be the late 90s or early 2000s when the movie channel used to air that Canadian series Star Hunter? Yeah, I remember that. I only really watched the movie channel whenever I was at my grandma's because she had that, so I didn't really see it all that often. Really just kind of clips here and there, but I do remember that. The only time I ever watched the movie channel was uh, Joe Bob. Yeah. Joe, Joe Bob was the only reason for the movie channel 
in my opinion. Otherwise, they always seem to have lots of musicals and kids shows and things like that. We're just unbearable except for Saturday night. Yeah, I remember that. that I remember that channel was always a crapshoot. Whereas <laughs> HBO, you could almost watch it any time. HBO, you could watch any time, depending on what mook type of the mood for. You know, Cinemax, you could get a lot of the cheesier stuff. Showtime, I remember uh, Hard Hard Knocks. You remember that with yes. Bill Maher, the the sitcom? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I've got like eight episodes of that on tape. Oh, that's fantastic! You got all these shows, man, that I haven't seen in like twenty years. But like, oh man, with Hard Knocks, you don't want to see it, Brad. I don't. They're horrible. I like doing that though. I like seeing what seeing something that I haven't seen in twenty years and seeing how my opinion of it changes. <laughs> I was actually offended at how not funny these things were. Oh, wow. And how bad Bill Maher is. At one point, they get attacked by a giant rabbit, and he yeah. literally runs his hands through his head and goes, Oh my God, it's a bunny from hell! Oh, I don't That's his I delivery think... of the line. Dude, I think, I think you're right. I, th- I think that actually might break my heart a little, because I love Bill Maher. So yeah, and he's actually... awful in this. Just <laughs> terrible. <laughs> oh, yeah, that that might actually, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, you may be right. That might actually bum me out. <laughs> I'll just... I'll just continue to watch real time. Maybe I'll send you copies of that, and then you can forget who sent them to you. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> All right, well, we're out of time, so another 55 minutes wasted with us. Yes. 1201beyond at gmail.com. And if anybody has any old cable guides, Brad and I want them. Every chance, no future I say, why does my